0: In this Judges series, we're nearing the end of it, um, but as we, as we get closer to the end, things are really spinning down and out of control. Um, they're going to get worse than Samson, but Samson is certainly uh, a major step in the wrong direction. Uh, this, this entire book is a lot of learning from bad examples, and we're going to see that again in this passage but even in the midst of the bad examples, God is in control. That's the huge message today. We're going we're to see how this wild man we were introduced to the last time we were in Judges, um, he's going to find a wife. Um, but all's not going to go well. Um, one of the commentators titles it, A Wedding Without a Honeymoon. Um, here's a guy driven by his passions more than uh, many people that, that you know or people you see in the Bible. Driven by his passions... Um, he's going to find a woman, but there's going to be no honeymoon, um, which is kind of symbolic of w- when, you're, when you're driven by your passions, um, it's going to produce not uh, what you're expecting. There's going to be a lot of lack of satisfaction in your life. Uh, when we think about this Samson character, uh, we're going to be with him a couple more weeks. I don't know what comes to your mind when you think of Samson, um, but for me, one of the things that came to my mind is this um, ad I used to see in comic books. I wasn't a big comic book kid growing up, but if you were if you were in any way connected to any comics, you would have seen ads for Charles Atlas, okay? Um, you would have seen an ad that would have gone something like this. By the way, if you remember this ad, you had a cassette player, um, but... Uh, it starts off usually with something like this. Hey, quit kicking sand in our faces. That man is the worst nuisance on the beach. Listen here, I'd smash your face. Only you're so skinny you might dry up and blow away. He's a, he's a bully. We're against bullies, by the way. Um, that big bully, I'll get even with him someday. I love this. Oh, don't let it bother you, little boy. She's already making her shift of affections. Darn it. I'm sick and tired of being a scarecrow. Charles Atlas says he can give me a real body. All right, I'll gamble the stamp and get his free info kit. Boy, it didn't take long for At- take Atlas Long to do this for me. What muscles! That bully won't shove me around again. The climaxing scene. What you here again? Here's something I owe you. Oh Mac, you are a real man after all, he's the hero of the beach. Gosh, what a build. He's already famous for it. I mean, just um, he's this uh, masculine uh, specimen of, of power. My question for you is, um, is that really going to be the accurate portrayal of Samson in this passage? And I think it's a little bit ambiguous. Um, There are certain places where it looks like people are afraid of Samson, maybe even one thing in this passage today but one of the questions they keep asking is what is the source of his strength perhaps he doesn't look all that intimidating because they're really curious how is it that he can do all of these things maybe he didn't look like he could really pull it off maybe he was just a man of of regular strength and it truly was the the power of god that allowed him to do it um i don't know it kind of goes back and forth for me but i want you to kind of read with your eyes open and as we continue to read and uh, maybe as you read through the passage through the week, just kind of look for the clues as to whether he was threatening just in and of himself, or maybe he was not so threatening, which is what made them so curious. How can he be pulling all of this off? Uh, I do have one resource out at the Connection Center for you. It's on the, online as well. It's an article by uh, Lawson Younger, really dealing with our motivations and what motivates us in this world. Um, God's sovereignty in this passage and an issue of parenting, because um, parenting Samson, I don't know if you've thought about this, think about what it would be like to parent Samson. Strong guy, driven by his passions, and empowered by God for a bigger purpose. Boy, that would have been a real challenge. We'll see the challenge in the passage today. I, I want to set up something else for us, just for some background of understanding, but it's really important for us to understand um, During this time, during the time when Samson would have been there about the 11th century BC, um, there's what's called this migration of the sea peoples. Uh, uh, People from Greece who were um, mariners, they had a lot of boats, they were really good at that, they uh, had a lot of sea trade, they began to migrate and to go some different places. And a lot of them ended up down here in Egypt when they arrived in Egypt, they were thinking, hey, this is a a fertile place and there's the delta from the Nile. Um, This would be a great place to live. But there was a strong pharaoh who drove them out and where he drove them is up into Canaan into what we would now call the Gaza Strip. And these are the Philistines. The Philistines are Greek people. They're part of this sea people migration. They're Greek in their heritage. This is going to become important in a moment. They're Greek in their heritage. Um, and they have migrated and ended up in this uh, coastal region on the west side of the promised land. Um, Now, why do I go to all of that trouble to talk about the migration of the Sea Peoples? Well, in this story, more than any other story in the book of Judges, there's a real uh, connection, I'm not going to go through all of these, between Samson and the Greeks. Um, Samson and Um, Homer's Iliad, which deals with Achilles and Hercules, there are unbelievable parallels between the two. I'm just going to highlight a few of them. Um, One of them is champion warfare. Um, The Greeks loved champion warfare, one guy fighting against everybody. Um, One of the most famous Philistines with Greek heritage in the Old Testament, you're going to meet him about 100 years later, his name is Goliath. He's a Philistine, Greek heritage, Champion warfare, the Greeks loved these champions who were powerful. Okay, in all of these Greek stories, uh, the other thing that is is very um, common in them is they love riddles, they love guessing games, and and the Greeks are the ones who invented. They love all kinds of games and sporting and competition. Boy, you see that in Samson as well. Samson loves the the competition, he loves the the riddles, and the other thing that is common in all of these Greek stories is um, the idea of of women being being a temptation and a threat and a foil and a problem in, in all of these situations. Now, the reason I put these up here is it does give some historical credibility of this is how these guys would have been thinking, but more than anything, Samson is thinking like the Philistines. Samson is thinking like a Greek, He's really um, begun to frame his world the way that the world around him is framing it. We've moved, you might notice, we've moved away at this point from idolatry. This is not really idolatry. There's not a problem of, of there being idols at this point. The problem is Samson just looks like the world. Samson looks like the Greeks in that world. Um, a little bit of orientation as well um, if you're into the maps. This is the Gaza Strip. Um, it's currently called the Gaza Strip, the city of Gaza, and it's where a lot of Palestinians are. It's a very hotly contested, because it's a fertile area, hotly contested place in the Middle East. Um, and within that, our stories are all going to take place in this one little clump of, of places that are all within about four or five miles of each other. Um, Samson is from Zorah. He's going to go to Timnah. Um, there's a, a town called Beth Shemesh, um, which is the house of the sun god. Basically, perhaps Samson even even named after that. Um, all of it's going to take place l- l- all close together, four miles apart. These when he's making these little jaunts, they're they're not days long. Except for the one thing that he does at the end of the story, he's going to go to Ashkelon, which is about 20 miles away. Kind of if he went along the coast. It would have taken him about 30 miles to get there. So this is kind of a local story. Um, these people probably knew something about each other, um, and Samson is acting like the world. <laughs> Keep that in mind as we move into this, because Samson, this wild man who we're going to be introduced to, by the way, if you have a son like Samson, um, if he's not your son, if he's in another, in another um, family, um, he's a pest. Um, he's a brat, okay? If he's in your family, he's strong-willed, okay? So Samson is, he's strong-willed if you've got one, and, and maybe you just, you, maybe you're just nodding your head, I got one, okay? Strong-willed, if he's in somebody else, he, he's, he's a brat. That's who Samson is. A lot of tensions in this passage. I'm going to set some of them up so that we can, can read this well, okay? Um, Mary Evans starts off by saying this, Previous accounts might have led readers to expect an account of military conflict to be introduced at this point, but the reality is far from that. Because of what we've seen already with Gideon and Barak, um, you kind of go, okay, here's the guy, and now there's going to be a war. He's going uh, to kill a king. He's going to uh, muster his army. There's going to be a military conflict. Not so with Samson. The rest of the Samson narratives consist of a series of stories relating primarily to Samson's sex life and his revenge on those whom he sees as acting against his interests in those areas. Um, Samson is all about the pleasure and the passion, And, and because of that, he's all alone. We know, because the next chapter is going to tell us, that Samson was a judge for 20 years, but we don't see him doing any of the things the other judges do. He is always by himself. He's even it seems like, because it's hard to track this, he seems like he's even running off from his parents all the time. Um, he, he's all by himself, and he's all about his pleasures and, and, and revenge. That's, that's Samson. That's his, his deal. But in the middle of it, verse number four is going to tell us God is active. Kenneth Way captures it this way. God can accomplish his plans even though people who are self-absorbed, disobedient, and disengaged from God. He, God uses those kind of people. And, and there's this tension here that, that Samson is worldly like the Greeks and the Philistines. He's just like them. He's passionate. He's not really acting like God wants him to act, but God still uses him. But, but I feel like I have to say this after almost every sentence today, but not without consequences. Consequences for him, consequences for those around him. Um, Barry Webb says, Then the Spirit of the Lord began to disturb him. That's from chapter 13. And he went down. Um, This going down was to be the first in a series of downward movements as he moved further and further away from the lifestyle God expected of him as a Nazarite. Five times, (laughs) Samson and the people with him go down. He goes down to Timnah. Uh, he goes down with his mom and dad. Um, he, he goes down to talk to the woman. He, he goes down to talk to her. Um, he, he goes down to Ashkelon. He, his life is a downward spiral. Um, a very similar thing happens in the book of Jonah, as Jonah continues to go down. But as his life is going down, there's a lot of secrets in that other column. The most important one is in chapter 4, Yahweh's secret, and that is, in the midst of all of this falling apart, going down, a man controlled by his passion, acting like the world, God's using it to accomplish his purpose. But not without consequences. One last thing before we get into the story. Uh, when Dr. Michelle Knight was here and she uh, was teaching us how to, how to read nar- biblical narratives, uh, one of the things she talked about was, pay attention to the narrator. This is called point of view. Um, the, the, the narrator is the person who, who kind of has this above-the-scenes picture of everything that's going on, and they let us into it. The, the narrator's voice, she says, is the authority in the narrative world. Trust the narrator and watch for interpretive clues, because the narrator's omniscient, they know the whole story. You can trust them, and they're trying to interpret everything for you. Pay attention in, as you read but, but particularly today, pay attention to because the narrator is going to clue us into something. And, and even in our English translations, it's usually found in parenthesis because the narrator is going to say, here's something you need to know that's been going on all along. We're going to look at, at Samson's character. Um, Samson is uh, a spoiled brat. Uh, he's entitled. He's a very curious guy. Um, he's going to end up being enraged at the end of this. Let's, talk, let's start off with his entitlement. Um, even though God's grace can be misused and turned to entitlement, <laughs> God is always at work accomplishing his purpose. Um, Samson knows from the very beginning, and it, it's clear later on, he knows that he's a Nazarite. He knows from the very beginning he's been set apart for something for God, but, but he misuses that. He doesn't say, so how do I line myself? He misuses it and and becomes entitled and basically saying, I can have what I want. Um, Here's the story. Samson went down to Timnah and saw there a young Philistine woman. When he returned, he said to his father and mother, I've seen a Philistine woman in Timnah. Now get her for me as my wife. I've seen somebody. She's good looking. Mom, dad, go get her entitled, demanding kid. Here's what I want. I want that iPhone, and I want it now. I saw, I saw a new model. I want it. Um, <laughs> I love Del Ralph Davis. <clears throat> he says this. Had Samson been an American, he would have said, let me tell you, I saw a woman, a W-O-M-A-N in Timna. I went down there, and I saw a real woman, not like these Israelite little girls around here. I went, I went four miles down the road. There's a woman over there. Go get her. I want her to be my wife. His father and mother replied, isn't there an acceptable woman in the youth group? Uh, Isn't there an acceptable woman among your relatives or among all your people? Must you go to the uncircumcised Philistines to get a wife? Can't you find a girl among our people? Now, this is not racial prejudice. This isn't racism here. Um, This is a warning against religious corruption. Which, by the way, plays itself out in the New Testament as well because the New Testament is going to say a believer should not be unequally yoked with an unbeliever because they will turn your heart away from the Lord. This has been very clear in Deuteronomy chapter 7. This is what the Lord said. When the Lord your God brings you into the land you are entering to possess and drives out before you many nations, the Hittites, Girgashites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, Jebusites, Canaanites, uh, mosquito bites, whoever's there, seven nations larger and stronger than you. And when the Lord your God has delivered them over to you and you have defeated them, then you must destroy them totally. Make no treaty with them. Show them no mercy. Do not intermarry with them. Do not give their, your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons, for they will turn your children away from following me to serve other gods. And the Lord's anger will burn against you and will quickly destroy you. The prohibition here is not for racial purity. It's for religious purity. The issue is these people will turn your hearts away. And then the whole rest of the Old Testament shows that. Solomon, the wisest man who's ever lived, married foreign wives... And they turned his heart away from the Lord. Yes, Solomon built a temple for the Lord, but he ended up building temples for these other wives and their gods. God wants us to to stay connected to people of the faith. Um, But Samson said to his father, Get her for me. She's the right one for me. Literally, it says, get her for me. She's right in my eyes. That is is a foretaste of what's going to come. In the last five chapters of this book, we're going to see repeatedly, now everyone does what is right in their own eyes. They just do what is right in their own eyes. And Samson's the first one, she's right in my eyes. I want it, I'm entitled to it, get me what I want. His parents did not know that this was from the Lord, who was seeking an occasion to confront the Philistines for that time, they were ruling over Israel. Um, Do you notice the parenthesis here? This is our narrator coming in saying, hey, let me tell you something that's going on. His parents don't know this. Samson probably doesn't even know this. But God is using his choices so that conflict can start between the Israelites and the Philistines, because the Philistines are just ruling over them. They're totally in charge at this point. But this is going to start, like it said in chapter 13, Samson will begin to release them. It's going to continue with Samuel, who's who's perhaps even alive at this point, um, and then with David, who's finally going to drive the Philistines out. But God is using this to to start it all up. Um, Samson entitled, um, pursuing his own passions and pleasures, but God is still going to use it. And there's a tension here. God is going to use this to accomplish his bigger purposes, but again, not without consequences for Samson and the people all around him. Driving this point home, Kenneth Way says, God is the one who is really orchestrating the events in the story. The narrator explains that the parents did not know that Samson's demand was from the Lord and that God was seeking an occasion, an opportunity against the Philistines. Mary Evans says it this way, at no stage do we see Samson expressing any concern for or interest in what might be Yahweh's purpose for him, not even the well-being of Israel as a whole. He's never pictured as consciously acting in the interest of his people. The text seems to go out of its way to portray Samson as entirely concerned for himself, the exact opposite of the commitment to Yahweh the Nazarite vow was supposed to express. Again, the best summary. Clearly, the unusual developments are providentially prompted by God. God's in control of all of this. God is sovereign. And he's going to use the entitled, enraged, passionate pursuits of pleasure of Samson to accomplish his purposes, but not without consequences. God's even going to empower him. The, the true power for Samson is coming from God. Samson went down one more time to Timnah together with his father and his mother. As they approached the vineyards of Timnah, suddenly a young lion came roaring toward him. By the way, it, it's, um, his parents aren't in the vineyard, you find out later. It seems like he's run off with them he's run off from them. They're, they're going, it's just a four-mile jaunt, but he's that kid where it's just like, has anybody seen him lately? Where is he? He's up, he's up in the vineyards. Oh my gosh, where's he at? This, he's that kid, okay? He's up in the vineyards and a young lion comes roaring toward him. This, this young lion is probably young and starting to stake out his territory, so pretty violent, aggressive. The Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon him so that he tore the lion apart with his bare hands as he might have torn a young goat. He... He powerfully takes this this lion down. And then it seems like he just kind of bops back down to join his parents and doesn't really say anything to them about it because they don't know what's happened. Then he went down, talked with a woman, and he liked her. He saw her, said, go get her for me. Now it looks like dad's going with him to kind of arrange the marriage. And now he's talking with her. and He goes, yeah, I like her. I, I like her. And that's all that matters for him. He's entitled, um, and, and he's, he's empowered by God for all of this, but he's just pursuing his own passions. And he's intrigued. This is a curious guy, okay? He's very curious, but his curiosity and his passion leads to subtle disobedience, which is significant, and it often has an impact on others around you. Um, let me show you this develop. It's really fascinating. Sometime later, when he went back to, mar- to marry her... He turned aside to look at the lion's carcass, and in it he saw a swarm of bees and some honey. He scooped out the honey with his hands, and he ate as he went along. So he's going back down. We don't know exactly what motivates him. He probably was like, "Ah, oh, I remember when I killed a lion up there. I wonder what's going on with the lion." He goes up there. He sees the lion. It's got a hollowed-out carcass, and there's some bees in there that have made some honey. He he, he sees the honey. He takes some honey. Eats the honey going to continue. When he rejoined his parents, because he's been bopping off in the vineyards, he gave gave them some, and they also ate. But he did not tell them that he had taken the honey from the lion's carcass. Okay, at this point, I want to say something. Um, This one person who's heard me teach Genesis too many times. She's already smiling. He saw, he took, he ate, And he gave to someone who was with him, and they ate. Ever see this before? Genesis chapter 3. This is the same thing happening all over again. By the way, it even backs up into Genesis 2 and Judges 13, where it begins with a lack of precision with God's word. Eve is less than precise with God's word in chapter 2, and Adam has to communicate to Eve, and somewhere in the translation, they're not precise. Manoah's wife doesn't clearly and exactly communicate to Manoah what the angel of the Lord said. And what that leads to is both of them see, take, and eat, and they give it to somebody else who's with them. Eve gives to Adam, Samson gives to his parents, and they eat, bringing somebody else into this. But And this is the tension of this passage. What they're doing is wrong, but it opens up the door for God to deliver them. It opens up the door for God in the Garden of Eden to provide clothing to cover their nakedness. Now, there are consequences. They have to move out of the Garden of Eden. But it highlights God's sovereignty and his grace in that even though you messed it up, I'm going to provide and use this as an opportunity to deliver you for Samson. Yes, even though you're defiling yourself and your your parents because you're associating with a dead body, which was a violation of the Nazarite vow, which his mother was supposed to have and he was supposed to have. But God is going to use this because this is going to be part of the riddle that's going to come later. And God is going to sovereignly use this to orchestrate the deliverance of his people because he's gracious because at this point they don't deserve it. Gosh, this is how it is, and and let me just, God's sovereignty and grace is what the Bible's all about. Genesis, Judges, Conway, Arkansas. (laughs) Our selfish choices reveal our inability to rule our own lives. I mean, that's the problem with the Judges, with the kings of Israel. They could rule the nation. They just couldn't rule themselves. But it highlights God's gracious work to deliver us from the very predicaments we get ourselves into. I gotta say it but not without consequences. God graciously delivers. Samson, empowered by the Lord, he's intrigued, he's a curious guy, and he's a a lot of fun. He's entertaining. He's going to throw a party, and he's going to tell some stories and have a riddle and make a game out of it. When our own self-interest and amusement dominate our worldview, he's like the Greek's. Chaotic consequences are a frequent result. Here's the story. Now his father, once more, goes down to see the woman. There Samson held a feast. By the way, this word for feast is not an eating feast. It's a drinking feast. If you didn't know that by the word, you know it because it says, as was customary for the young men. This is a drinking feast. Another violation of his Nazarite vow. When the people saw him, they chose 30 men to be his companions. couple things I want to just highlight there. First of all, he's all alone. He doesn't have, he doesn't want one of those girls from the youth group, and he doesn't have any friends in the youth group either, because when he gets down here, it looks like the Philistines have to choose his own groomsmen. I'm wondering why they chose 30. This is the one thing that makes me go, maybe he was an imposing figure, and they thought, okay, if this guy has a little bit too much to drink, we better get 30 guys around him to control it. I don't don't know. It's ambiguous in the passage. "'Let me tell you a riddle,' Samson said to them. "'If you can give me the answer "'within the seven days of this feast, "'I will give you 30 linen garments "'and 30 sets of clothes. "'If you can't tell me the answer, "'you must give me 30 linen garments "'and 30 sets of clothes.'" The linen garments would have been underwear and the sets of clothes would have been just the regular set of clothes. Um, "'As it is likely that most men "'would have had only one linen undergarment "'and only one good set of outer clothes, "'the cost of failing to solve the riddle "'would have been high.'" For the 30 guys, it means they have to give up their clothes. For Samson, he's got to come up with 30 sets of clothes. Tell us your riddle, they said. Let's hear it, because they're Greeks. They love this. It's all about the game. It's all about having fun. He replied, out of the eater, something to eat. Out of the strong, something sweet. For three days, they could not give the answer. He's got a riddle, and it's unsolvable. I mean, unless you had been there... You, we're, we're, because of the narrator, who's omniscient, we know what this is, but there's no way they're going to figure it out. This is an impossible riddle. So you have a strong guy telling riddles, it's the combination of both Fezzik and Vecini, okay? You've got Fezzik and Vecini in one guy, okay? He, he, he's powerful, and now the Sicilian is going to have a battle of wits with them. Uh, Robert Chisholm says this, Samson seems to possess great cunning, but he overlooked two important facts. The Philistine's ingenuity, and more importantly, his own vulnerability to female charm. (laughs) Yes, he's strong, he's powerful, he's throwing a big feast, he's having games and he's telling riddles, but his one weakness is the women. In fact, all these stories are going to be about Samson and women. Samson and his mom, Samson and this wife, Samson uh, when he comes back for that wife, and then Samson and another woman, and then Samson and Delilah. It's all about Samson and the women. It's not about the wars. It's about the women with Samson. On the fourth day, they said to Samson, Samson's wife, coax your husband into explaining the riddle for us, or we will burn you and your father's household to death. Did you invite us here to steal our property? Um, they go to the wife, and she's the real victim in all of this. They, they put her in a no-win situation. Either she's going to lose her husband, her future husband, or she's going to lose her life. So, I mean, there, there's no good way for her out, and it's going to play itself out that way. She's going to lose her life. Then Samson's wife threw herself on her, sobbing. You hate me. You don't really love me. You've given my people a riddle, but you haven't told me the answer. Oh, you hate me. I mean, she's putting the pressure on him. By the way, these two, they, um, it, they're two, two ticks looking for a dog. They, they are both just trying to take advantage of, of one another. I haven't even explained it to my father or my mother, he replied. So why should I explain it to you? She cried the whole seventh day. That's probably what it means. Not the whole seven days, but she probably cried the whole seventh day of the feast. So on the seventh day, he finally told her, because she continued to press him. She, in turn, explained the riddle to her people. She's still her people. It's still about her people here. Before sunset on the seventh day, kind of right under the wire, the men of the town said to him with their own riddle, what is sweeter than honey? What is stronger than a lion? They riddle back and say, hey, we figured it out. Samson says to them, I know you cheated. And here's how he says it. If you had not plowed with my heifer, you would not have solved my riddle. Some of you are smiling. <laughs> yes, he called her a cow. Mary Evans says this her, his reference to her as a heifer was almost certainly meant to be as in, impolite as it comes across in English and illustrates Samson's facility with words and lack of true respect for women. I mean, he's using women. He doesn't love women. He's he's using them just to fulfill his passions and his revenge. And and that's what happens, he gets enraged in this. But God is involved. God will always accomplish his purpose while we reap what we sow. Watch this play out. Then the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon him. He went down to Ashkelon, that's that 20 mile journey, struck down 30 of their men, stripped them of everything, and gave their clothes to those who had explained the riddle. Burning with anger, he returned to his father's home. He stormed out of the wedding feast. Okay, Next week, he's going to come back and go, okay, I want my wife. <laughs> There's going to be trouble. Um, but here, the Spirit of the Lord comes upon him, and and he he's able to overpower 30 men 20 miles away. Maybe there were, you know, he, he didn't... He didn't want to take the guy's own clothes. He had to get somebody else's clothes, so he goes to another town. Again, I, I love Del Rolf Davis. <clears throat> the text is clear. What we are dealing with is not Samson's temper, but the Spirit's power. If this seems brutal, we must simply live with it. We've already seen that when Yahweh delivers his people, he does not always dip his saving axe in Clorox and sprinkle them with perfume. To deliver from evil will frequently be messy. God will deliver, but it may mean kicking you out of the garden. God will deliver, but it may mean there are consequences that are going to go on and on and on. God's in control. He will deliver. But that deliverance, particularly when there's evil, when God's people are looking like the world, the consequences can be pretty severe. Here's what Samson faced. Samson's wife was given to one of his companions who had attended him at the feast. Here's a guy who at the passage, all at the beginning of the passage, all we know is, I saw a woman, I want her. She's the right one for me. Dad, go get her. Let's have a party about all this. And at the end, he doesn't have her. The grace of God, <laughs> The grace of God allows him to use us for his purposes, in spite of our shortcomings, but not without consequences. Boy, the tension in this passage is Samson's not doing what he's supposed to do, but God is still accomplishing his purposes because God is sovereign, and he will graciously deliver. In the next passage, God will be gracious to Samson in ways I do not understand. But there are still consequences to what's going on in this passage. Um, Al Ross says this, God can even use our failures to do something he wants to be get done. Of course, that doesn't give us any credit. This is to our shame. In spite of us, if somebody comes to faith, that's the grace of God. God uses us, and it's always he gets the credit for us. In fact, so many times he has to use us in spite of us. So where do we go? Here's three next steps. I mean, through this whole Judges series, I've tried to take these negative messages, because this is kind of learning from the bad example, and, and give you a truth and a warning and a challenge. So here's my next steps in that form. God's sovereign purpose will always be accomplished, often in spite of us. Um, just because your children turn out well, just because you're succeeding at work, just because um, there's a lot of people at church on Easter Sunday, that doesn't mean we get the credit for any of it. God uses us in spite of us because he's the one who's bringing it all all about. And here's a warning. Our selfish entitlement and petulant preoccupation with entertainment will eventually come home to roost. Back in 1985, a man named Neil Postman wrote a book Entertaining Ourselves to Death. It's a fantastic book. Entertaining ourselves to death. Um, back then, um, cable channels were just starting to, to be a thing, uh, 1985, think of it, um, long time ago. One year after the introduction of the Apple Macintosh, of which I have its great-great-great-great-great-grandson down here, and I have on my wrist another child of the apple macintosh with which this past week i was at josh's house was locked out didn't have my phone with me but i logged onto his internet and with my watch i called my wife it's the freaking jetsons these days (laughs) i can get the scores to the game I can put my garage door up and down right now with my watch. <laughs> uh, it's no longer about the entertainment. We've been doing this since 1985, entertaining ourselves to death. You know what we're experiencing now? Not the entertainment, the death. Neil Postman was a prophet. <laughs> we are entertaining ourselves to death. And all of that's gonna come home to roost because it's all about our pleasures our passions, getting our needs met. I see it, I want it. So the challenge in all of that, because the world of the Greeks is all around us, the world of pleasure is all around us, the world tells you, if you want it, you can have it. Anything you dream, you can do. Don't let anyone tell you you can't. The world's telling you that. God may use you in spite of yourself, but the better thing to do is align yourself with the purposes of God. Figure out what God is doing and not what the world around you is doing. The temptation is, oh, what is the world? That's what Samson did. What are the Greeks like? I'm going to be like the Greeks. Champion warfare. Let's make it a game. Let's tell some riddles. Find me a woman. (laughs) The consequences for his life and his family are disastrous. How do you avoid the disastrous consequences of your own passionate pursuits, your own selfish entitlement, your own preoccupation? Uh, h- how do you, how do you f- figure that out? <laughs> Align yourself with the purposes of God. Father, I ask that you would teach us these lessons, teach them to us well. Father, I pray that we would... Um, We would see your purposes. We would align ourselves with them. That we would confess when we're just being selfish and, Lord, not so much idolatrous, but just worldly. Lord, open our eyes to see where we've bought the world's narrative and we're not living the way you call us to live. Father, um, align us with you and your purposes. I ask that in Christ's name. Amen.